Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. And now, cried Max, let the wild rumpus start. I'm Ian Woodworth and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today we are going to be starting into our second of our third batch of Outer Plains and D&D Cosmology. We are going into the Wilderness of the Beastlands. And like with Pandemonium, we are planning on splitting this up into two episodes. The first episode is going to be an overview, you know, who you're going to find here, what you're going to find here. And then next week's episode will be an in-depth tour of each of the layers of the Beastlands. Now, I'm kind of split on these. I mean, obviously, I love doing these. We've been digging up more information. And Beastlands, again, trying to find the DMG on this, we get like maybe a paragraph. But there's so much depth here, and I'm both happy and apologetic that we are going so in-depth. I mean, obviously, a quick episode, here's this, and go. I'm really enjoying being able to dive real, real deep into these lores, though. And there it really is so much to bring you all. So if we get a little long-winded, we apologize, but there's really good stuff here. So sorry, not sorry. <laughs> and the length of these episodes has been increasing partially because I have been acquiring more second edition books as we go along so i'm i have a bigger pool to draw from but also because these are the lesser known planes you know you don't really see people talking about the beastlands or isgard or arcadia these are the lesser known underrepresented middle children in a very real sense planes of dnd cosmology and so i feel that we are within our purview to dive deeper into these to find more information to bring them out because there is so much here that nobody knows about right and these really do deserve to be on your table i mean all of these outer planes the inner planes i mean there's just so much lore and so many awesome things that just absolutely got left behind so let's go ahead let's and put on a pitch cap and go yeah <laughs> yeah so the Beastlands are the plane of chaotic neutral good. So they sit between Elysium, which is pure good, and Arborea, which is chaotic good. So it is a good aligned plane with a hint of chaos. Just a touch of chaos. A little Just bit a touch. And it manifests as a sense of freedom rather than a sense of anarchy. Because it is sort of muted. It isn't the full-blown chaos that you would see in Arborea. One of the alternate names for the Beastlands, and James and I had a little conversation about this before we started recording, is the Happy Hunting Grounds. And that was intended at the time to be sort of a derogatory tongue-in-cheek moniker. It's not exactly a place that you really want to go hunting, and we'll get into the details on why that is later on. Yeah, my issue, again, Happy Hunting Grounds, it's a very stereotypical, almost derogatory, like in Disney, Peter Pan and things like that. When the native people died, you know, everybody, oh, they're going to the Happy Hunting Ground, you know, and it was supposed to be this wild land where there was plenty of game and forest and it was untouched and virgin, you know, wilds. And I think taking the name from that really is a disservice. And I mean, I would prefer, honestly, not to see it. It sits wrong. Now, again, as Ian explained, as you get more the depth and meaning, maybe I prefer just calling it the Beastlands or the Wildlands. Personally, like I said, I'm not happy with the Happy Hunting Ground moniker. Also, this was written in the late 80s, early 90s and before. So there is that. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely one of those names that is 
colored by the period where it was written. And I would agree with you that going forward, that is a moniker that I would happily drop from this because it is a moniker that does have that stereotypical and racial overtone to it. But the plane itself is a plane of nature unbound. So it is a very... It really is a virgin wild. I mean, when I read these modules, when I read the descriptions of this land, and again, this is very much a product of the time, but I get very much Hemingway, Kipling, things like Tarzan, Jungle Book. You know, it's that dense, unexplored, just nature has overtaken everything. Man has just now touched. So, you know, quote what they used to call Dark Africa, which was like the Republic of Congo now, where again, it was just modern civilization had not reached these points yet. So it really was untapped, untouched nature, which is glorious in its own right. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's so few places like that left in the world anymore. So just that would make this a place I would want to go. Absolutely. Yeah. And so as a place of nature unbound, the predominant landscape feature are forests and they range everything from mangrove swamps where the trees are hung heavy with moss to snowfall laden pine forests to acres of sequoias so thick that light cannot penetrate their canopy this was written by someone who's never been to a sequoia national to sequoia yeah i was about to say that is like (laughs) that's not how sequoias grow but Good on you. <laughs> but it is good and evocative. It is, yes. It does provide a great mental image. And if you have a chance to go again, Sequoia National Park was one of those places I grew up very close to. It was one of my favorite places to visit. If you get a chance, go before the whole thing burns down. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. <laughs> and the, the thing is that some of these trees, as we'll get to touch it on later on, these trees are truly colossal in their scale. I mean, they're more so than what you'll actually see in the real world. I mean, there are accounts later on when we get to the second layer where there's a town where the Avarials, the winged elves, live in the canopy of these trees. And the town itself, at the point where it's closest to the ground... It's a mile up and it's in the tops of these trees. So you have to think just how big these trees are. I mean, I can't even imagine a tree that is over a mile tall. Yeah, the closest thing I can think of in a modern sense that we could relate to would be the great tree in the Avatar movie. Just a forest of those, not just a great tree, but a forest of great trees. Absolutely, yes. But I mean, just to put it into context, that would be a tree that has its roots at sea level and its canopy at Denver. That's kind of awesome. (laughs) That's how tall we're talking. You know, that's 5,280 feet. That's how tall we're talking. And this isn't a wispy tree either. So you got a base for that as well. No, this this sucker is, he's a chonk. (laughs) And just trying to go off of some ratios here. Let's just say a 300 foot tall tree is six feet across at the base. That seems reasonable. That seems reasonable. Maybe, maybe a bit girthier than that, but six makes for easier math. So that would be for every one foot of diameter, you're 50 feet tall. So whenever you've got 5,200 feet, that would be somewhere around 600, 650 feet diameter trunk. 
So you're looking at about two football fields for, you know. Yes. So it's bad at math. Absolutely. So you're looking at a tree that is over 600 feet in diameter. So really, if you took that length, it's basically the base of the tree would be about the same around as an actual stadium. You know, either a collegiate baseball or football stadium. Yes. And that's one tree. And you're talking a forest of trees that big. Just to put it into some sort of perspective. Needless to say, the orcs have plenty to chop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's not all just forest. So you're going to have some areas where it is open plains. Just open wide grassland like the savannas in Africa. You're going to have some places on the edges of plains where you have things like forest of giant fungi. You're going to have areas within here that are deserts, but they're not going to be your desolate like Sahara deserts. They're going to be more like the Gobi or the desert out in the Midwest where you're going to have cacti and aloe and all of these other native desert plants and all of the wildlife associated with that yeah so you'll have a bunch of grasses so what we're going to see is through this there is every possible biome so again you can be as far flung with your imagination as you want or you could just take wherever your home is and just imagine kind of like the day after tomorrow or 12 monkeys you know if humanity just went poof and nature retook wherever you're from that is still a perfectly viable setting for anywhere in the beastlands Yes, absolutely. So the weather for each particular biome is ideal for anything that grows. So for the plants that are growing in this particular biome, the weather is ideal for those plants. And in turn, going to be ideal for the animals that are living there. And one of the things that they do note is that you don't have just abrupt changes in biome. They are all transitioning from one to another in a natural way, in the way that it would naturally do in the real world if people hadn't come along and, you know, developed everything. So the plane itself is heavily populated with animals, with beasts, with magical beasts. So just about any critter that you can think of, there is an analog of that creature within the Beastlands. Yeah, this is where, again, you're getting a lot of your primordial stuff. You're going to find that Beastlands is probably one of your more variable plants just because it covers literally all of nature. And talking about just as dense as the natural growth, the flora, the fauna, all of this is, I was really thinking this plane would have been perfect for the setting that we did with the World Build With Us way back when. This would have been absolutely perfect for that. Yes, just make that a realm within the plane where that nature goddess that we never named was holed up. And so that realm would be the setting location for what we came up with. And if you don't know about that, you should go back and check the episode that we did with World Bit with us. So towns and settlements are present within the Beastlands, but they're very rare and they tend to be incorporated into the environment rather than clearing out a spot and building a building like you normally would. A lot of them are, as I mentioned with the Avariel, their town is woven like nests within the tree branches and the canopy of the forest. So they are using the natural environment to construct their towns. 
Right, again, very much like that concept you saw, again, referencing the movie Avatar. If you go back to like the older, like 80s, 90s, and before old fantasy where the elves lived in the trees, you had the, the nymphs and the dryads and things like that. Definitely that kind of very green one with nature. You might have some wood singers that could, you know, magically shape and bend wood as a magical ability type thing. You would definitely find that kind of setting here versus a modern industrial city. Saruman with his mind of gears and metal. Not so much here. (laughs) Nah, but that scenario... Absolutely. The, the Isengard scenario would absolutely happen here. Absolutely. Because the yeah. hobbits are going to Isengard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So judging off of the overarching features of the plane from third edition, the plane itself is pretty typical for an outer plane. It's got normal gravity. It's got normal time. The magic in third edition was not really affected a whole lot. The magic was pretty strongly affected in second edition, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But in third edition, it was basically bog standard. The plane itself is mildly good aligned. So evil creatures would take a charisma penalty whenever they were on the plane. The plane is of infinite size, but visitors to the plane generally stay within a fairly small area of the plane. It's not like Arborea, where you have these little enclaves throughout the entirety of the plane and you just go hop from one to another to another to another. This is pretty contained, kind of like the concept of a wildlife preserve in reverse. Like there's this small region of the plane where you're allowed to be. And outside of that, it's under your own cognizance at your own risk. I could see that. The way I would describe this plane, this plane is very dense. Again, just because there is so much natural growth. If you've been in the woods, again, where you've got a bunch of that underbrush, there's going to be a lot of animals, there's a lot of wildlife, there's a lot of plant life. So it's not something you're going to traipse easily through. Again, going back and referencing, you know, movies like Congo by Crichton or old Kipling stories or Jungle Book, you know, where you had the machete and you kind of had a hack a path through because it hasn't been really explored or exploited yet. So movement itself, you're probably going to have a lot of difficult terrain here and a lot of hazardous terrain as well. So that movement speed is going to be very limited. So you're not going to travel quickly. So yeah, your range that you're going to get on any given day really does draw itself in. This is definitely going to be a plane where you're going to need to pick up a ranger to be your guide. Oh, I don't know if I'd go with a ranger here. I would really not want to play a ranger. Absolutely, because they have that ability that allows them to ignore natural difficult terrain in their preferred, in their favorite terrain. And they can extend that to their party. Yes, I will grant you that. But I was going to say there is a penalty coming up that we will discuss that depending on the type of ranger you pick might become a problem. Yeah, if you're... (laughs) I mean, if you're a Beastmaster Ranger, you're going to have a bad time, but... (laughs) Also, probably a Swarm Keeper. A Swarm Keeper would probably have a tough time here, too. Yeah. Now, a Druid? Druids would love this plane. The Druids are just going to be absolutely Absolutely. home. Yeah. But we'll get there. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get there. We keep dropping all of these teasers. I know, really. Pretty tease. I know. So portals within the Beastlands are very common, as are portals between the Beastlands and the neighboring plains of Elysium and Arborea. We covered this a little bit when we were talking about Arborea with its borders that fluctuate and how Arborea sometimes transitions into the Beastlands or sometimes 
transitions into Isgard. That's just how the chaos of Arborea manifests itself. The portals between planes from the Beastlands often take the form of hollow trees. So a tree that is visibly hollow that you can walk into. And whenever you walk into it, you come out in another place. So the examples that were given in the second edition book are a lightning blasted and rotten oak. If you crawl into that, it may lead you out into Arborea, whereas a toppled and hollowed giant sequoia may lead you into Elysium. I could see either one of those. I would also say, too, in the settlements that you do find, portals between settlements would probably be a preferred method of travel for a majority of the non-party NPCs. That would make a lot of sense to me, again, just because uh, wildlife can be so dense or it can be so harsh, even if like you are in a desert or a tundra or a grasslands, might not be like wading through trees, but there's still a lot of wildlife to get through, that a portal between one settlement and another would make a lot of sense. Yeah, if you could get one to be stable. Yeah. But it would also probably be one of those things where it's only going to be people who are affiliated with the faction controlling that settlement that would be able to use it. Absolutely. You're probably going to have to do some favors or pay a nice bit of coin to use those portals. They're not cheap. Or, you know, hire a guide who is a member of the faction. Also a good plan. So portals between the layers of the Beastlands are a little more insubstantial, and they're typically one way. Some of the examples that they gave were passing between two trees or ducking under a branch. Some of the things that we covered as fey crossings when we were talking about the Feywild, anywhere where you can transition from one to another, anything that can be interpreted as a threshold, something that you can just sort of pass through, would be grounds for a good portal between layers in the Beastland. Right. Anything that was like a liminal space would be amazing. Think like a dark pool. Again, you're still going to have caves and caverns. Uh, You're going to have the trees like we spoke of. I think it's called pompous grass. I always call them duck blinds, but they're those big clumps of grass that kind of grow up and they can be like six, seven, eight feet tall. You could just walk into one of those and poof, kind of like in the Field of Dreams where he's walking through the cornfield. I mean, that could definitely wind up being a portal of one sort or another. Yeah, but with it being the Beastlands, you're talking more like a 30 foot tall yeah, <laughs> stand that, of that stuff yeah absolutely but i mean you could have a clump of that and just kind of pass through again like i said caves just even at like a veil or if you've ever seen honeysuckle or jasmine grow where it kind of grows or ivy where it kind of grows along a wall or a sheet and you walk through like a sheet or a veil of that that would be a great portal again you can really let your imagination go just anything that's a transitional anything is poof and now you're somewhere else And the transitions within the Beastlands are denoted by the ambient light because the three layers, the top layer is afternoon, the second layer is twilight, it's right at sunset, and the third layer is night. So you can judge by how bright or dark it is what layer you just came out on. And the portals are really common, so it should be fairly easy. If your portal was one way, should be fairly easy for you to find another portal that will lead you back. And the native creatures of the plane know where all the portals are. So if you are capable of communicating with them, and we'll, again, touch on that in a minute, you will be able to find the portal that you're looking for by communicating with the denizens of the plane. The world ash Yggdrasil 
is also present within the Beastlands. It has branches that enter all three layers. Wait, 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 wait. You're saying a plane with giant ash trees is going to have a giant ash tree in it? <laughs> the giantest assist of trees. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There's the audio clip for this episode. Um, <laughs> anyway, getting back in. Um, <laughs> so with Yggdrasil, Yggdrasil has a bunch of portals on it. It is one of the major arteries of travel in second edition Planescape. It's one of the easiest ways to bounce from plane to plane, mainly because it touches most of the upper planes, but the roots also go down into Loki's longhouse and pandemonium. And there's one that also goes into Hell's longhouse in Hades. So it is a way to get from plane to plane fairly quickly. Mount Olympus also has those portals. So there are a bunch of portals within the branches of Yggdrasil. They're guarded by these creatures called Purs, P-E-R. And they are the spirits of humans who were guardians, bodyguards, those sorts of individuals who, as I understand it, they typically died doing their duty. And so they are offered this afterlife where they get to continue being guardians, being protectors, and they stand guard on these portals to prevent people from going through that aren't supposed to be going through. Right. I think, again, coming back to a modern pop culture reference, if you're a fan of the uh, Dresden Files by Jim Butcher, the Einherr Garden that he has in some of the later books, a lot of them would probably qualify as these pers. They were warriors who died in battle, generally protecting a point or a person or something like that. But it was definitely that kind of guardian spirit. So yeah, they've given their life for their duty or for their ward in that. And so their soul kind of has that special quality that's required or at least lets them take this role on in the afterlife, as it were. Yeah, except that in second edition, the Einherjar are a completely different entity. Granted. So they are more the battle-born. They're more the souls of the valiant dead who have fallen in battle. Right. Whereas these are specifically guardians, protectors. These would be the people who had that heroic last stand. At the gate? You know, yeah, this would be the Hodor individuals. Awesome, yeah. I kind of love Hodor, man. Hodor yeah. was one of Martin's better characters. He, he got, he got, <laughs> they, they did Hodor dirty. I'm sorry. <laughs> but another aspect of Yggdrasil is there is a sentient race that makes its home within the branches of Yggdrasil, primarily in the branches that come out into the Beastlands, and they're called the Ratatosk which are flying squirrel people. Oh my God, it's going to be Squirrel Girl from Deadpool 3. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> which that means that we have to have Ratatosk as a playable race. Absolutely, yes, please. Yes, so I'm going to try and make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not like we're a homebrew podcast or anything. I know, right? Heaven forbid. Now, another means of travel throughout the plains that touches on the Beastlands is the River Oceanus. It flows through the Beastlands as it goes from Elysium to Arborea. And it flows as a straight line through the plane. It is oddly unnatural in this sense because it doesn't have the natural curves and oxbows and whatever have you that you would normally see in a river that is just wending its way through. It is actually a straight shot, almost like somebody dug a canal and it just a straight line through the plane until it reaches the other side and drops off into Arborea. 
Yeah, that is weirdly unnatural. And bringing this up, I mean, it really did help me think that one of those biomes that I hadn't considered that would make a lot of sense in the Beastlands. Obviously, we talked about wetlands and marshes, but something like a wade pool or even like a low tide in a shore or ocean. So, I mean, you still have these water biomes that are going to exist to a point in Beastlands, though most of them are going to be terrestrial. And there are a number of tributaries that split off of the Oceanus that do wind their way through the plain. Yeah, this isn't the only source of water. (laughs) Yeah. So there are other streams and lakes and such that aren't connected to the Oceanus. There's one that we're going to touch on when we get near the end of the first layer next week. There is a stream that flows into a lake that, as far as I can tell, does not actually connect back to the Oceanus. But there are a number of streams that actually counter to how it works in nature, where the small streams run into the big river. It runs in reverse, where these streams actually come off of Oceanus and wind through the plain. Okay, I could see that in various ways. You could have like a spring from an aquifer or something like that. And even with that lake, again, underground water table, we can get pretty geeky about water dynamics and hydraulics and things like that. Because again, people who play D&D aren't going to geek out on things at all because that would be completely unheard of. But there are ways to fix that and make that happen. Or you can just completely ignore that because this is a magical plane (laughs) of chaos. So... Oh, you know, there's that too. (laughs) So we do have that going on. So where the river flows in from Elysium and where the river flows out into Arborea, you have a stretch of cataracts of these whitewater rapids that are super dangerous to try and traverse. That's why whenever we were talking about Mount Celestia, how you could get a boat from that town on the first layer of Mount Celestia that could take you to all of the more chaotic good plains on up through Elysium and Arborea and the Beastlands and into Eastgard. All of those planes, the further you got, the more expensive it was because it was more dangerous to go. This is part of the reason why it's more dangerous to go. And to touch on what James was saying about the undergrowth and all of that, despite this being a plane of pure nature, the plane itself isn't any more difficult to navigate than an equivalent natural environment on the material plane. It does state as much in the second edition book. So yeah, it'll be hard to get through because you'll have the brambles and the undergrowth, but it's not going to be one of those things where the undergrowth is so thick that you can't possibly chop through it with a machete. You will definitely be able to get through and it will still impede your travel, but it won't impede your travel any more than an equivalent natural environment on the material plane. And the last thing I want to touch on in terms of travel through the plane is that any creature with a climb speed or which can brachiate, which is a fun word meaning to swing from the branches like a monkey. If you can do the monkey bars. If you can do the monkey bars, you can move through the plane without touching the ground in most places. I like it. Floor is lava. (laughs) So now we have to make a spell called monkey climb that would let you run and jump from branch to branch like that. An equivalent to spider climb. I'm trying to think. I mean, most of the characters are going to be able to brachiate because, again, it's that humanoid structure where you can reach your arms up over your head. You can brachiate depending on your strength. Yeah, but that was a trait that was available to certain creatures in second edition because this is a second edition rule. Okay. So things like apes and giant apes and things like that. Right. I'm trying to think of what monkey climb would be, though. Like, I would give it expertise in climbing. 
and then maybe a vantage on strength checks. I don't know. That's something we'd have to workshop off air. Absolutely. <laughs> because we're already going long here. Yeah. We've still got a bunch of stuff to cover. So diving into the magic of the Beastlands from 2nd Edition, because there were a bunch of changes to the way that magic worked in the Beastlands in 2nd Edition that I really want to cover. First, in the School of Alteration, because of the presence of this almost divine elemental creature called the Mortai, they are these giant living clouds, spells which manipulate wind, air, or weather automatically fail. This includes spells like Featherfall, Fly, Gust of Wind, and Windwall. Yeah, I love these Mortai. If you've ever played Magic the Gathering, these guys definitely rock a blue deck. Absolutely. <laughs> and personally, I would also include spells like Call Lightning, Sleet Storm, and Hailstorm because they are weather effects. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense as well. With Conjuration, spells which summon monsters can only summon denizens of the plane, and they are under no compulsion to actually help you. Again, that's that nice little chaotic bend of things. I, I kind of yeah. like it, so be careful what you summon. All right, divination spells. Spells which rely on extraplanar knowledge or beings, such as contact other plane, straight up don't work. Oops. <laughs> the explanation given in the book is, quote, this is nature's plane and unnatural resources just don't have a place here. So this would mean things like divine intervention, you know, the cleric's divine intervention spell, unless their god is present in the Beastlands, it isn't going to work. Oh, ouch. So what I picture this, remember, it was the early 2000s, the Geico commercial with the, uh, I can't remember the basketball player's name, where the guy's trying to throw the thing. And he's like, he jumps out of nowhere, slaps it. Yeah. No, uh, no, not to uh, my house. Is it, is it Okafor? <laughs> it might be. I don't know. I can't remember. I'm terrible with names. But I totally like, you cast a divination spell on this giant hand. Smack! No, 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 not in my plane. <laughs> it's like the panda cheese panda. Yes. Those are amazing commercials. Anyway, from the enchantment school, the denizens of this plane are immune to mind control or charm effects. So the bulk of your enchantment school just isn't going to work on any of the beasts that live here. Okay, again, fairly reasonable, makes sense. Yeah, it goes back into, it is a plane of freedom rather than a plane of chaos. Freedom versus anarchy. And so anything that is going to subjugate a creature that is going to take away its freedom is antithetical to the plane and isn't going to work. With necromancy spells, harmful or damage-dealing spells like Chill Touch and Energy Drain are cast as if one level lower. Um, this was back when spell levels really mattered with your spells. The explanation they give is that death is part of life, but it doesn't come easily by unnatural means. I absolutely love that. And like this concept here is exactly how I play a druid, which is really why I want to play a circle of spores druid, because it kind of embraces this and a circle of the spores druid would just do amazing in the beastlands anyway. Spores or a circle of shepherd. But I really love this twist they put on necromancy. This just feels so interesting. You could do so much and it makes beautiful sense. Like this was a very golden spin. They put on everything. I love it. So Personally, how I would interpret this in 5th edition is that if it is a spell that deals damage, the number of damage dice is reduced by 1, with the exception of things like the Toll the Dead cantrip. If it only has 1 damage die, I would say that it deals half damage. Understandable, yeah, that makes sense. Just trying to get that 1 level lower feel out of it, because that's not 
as big a thing in fifth edition as it was in second edition. And I would also give targets advantage on saving throws against these necromancy spells. Oh, absolutely. Again, that would fit perfectly with that. No unnatural source. All right. And then finally with elemental magic, this is most of your evocation spells with air because of the presence of the Mortai spells tied to elemental air automatically fail. So that involves gusting winds, lightning damage, some of your thunder damage spells, anything that affects the weather. We touched on that a little bit earlier. Anything that can be tied to elemental air just straight up doesn't work because the Mortai don't let it. Fire spells are enhanced on Krigala, which is the first layer, is the layer that is in afternoon sun. Because elemental fire can be drawn from the sun on this plane, fire spells are enhanced on Krigala, so they would deal extra damage, whereas they are diminished on Karasuthra, which is the third layer, the layer that is in perpetual night, because the sun isn't there. Strangely enough. Funny that. So spells that are tied to elemental earth are enhanced whenever you're near the mountains or large rocky outcroppings. So things like Wall of Stone would probably get some sort of bonus. I would say things like maybe Catapult might, because it is dealing with gravity. Oh, I don't know, maybe. Maybe not. That would be kind of a gray area you'd have to convince me. Yeah, you'd have to convince me with that if the Moriarty just didn't like flat say, nope. <laughs> you mean the Mortai? Yeah, the Mortai. Sorry, I, I totally need a Moriarty Mortai. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the great mouse detective. Come on. <laughs> but, I mean, if you're trying to use a catapult to finagle a fly of some ability, I could see them just like, no, just slapping you out of the air. Well, I mean, that's not how catapult works. I mean, without upcasting it, you can only fling an object that is five pounds or lighter. Right, but you can upcast it and then try to, I don't know, people try to break stuff like that all the time. I mean, unless I can see a chain of events that would allow you to approximate a semi-guided flight spell with it that would involve using reduce on the character to shrink their size and then treating them as a projectile or attaching them to an object that would act as the projectile. Right. It's like picking up Thor while he's holding Thor's hammer so he can smash somebody with it, that kind of thing. (laughs) But additionally, it only has a range of 90 feet. Okay. Yeah, that is true. So, I mean, unless you're trying to clear a chasm or something, it's not going to be a very effective mode of transportation. No. Let's say. I will definitely grant you that. All right. Now that we've gotten distracted by that, (laughs) let's come back real quick. Touch on the last one, water. Spells tied to elemental water are enhanced when you're near large bodies of water. So the river Oceanus or a lake, or if you're in a swamp where you have a large water presence, all of those water spells would be enhanced. So things like anything that does ice. So anything that has ice damage would probably be enhanced here. Things like watery sphere, tsunami, any of the big water spells. And again, really, your spells depend on what kind of mana you're casting. If you wanted to like somehow blend Magic the Gathering and D&D, this would be the perfect realm to do that in. Just because everything is so much tied to the land you're at and on, your surroundings very much do determine what you're able to do and how you do it. All right, moving along to the creatures of the Beastlands. Um, most of the creatures that you will encounter in the Beastlands are celestial versions of of wild creatures found in the material plane. So these are your common animals and beasts and vermin, so like rats and insects and such, but also magical beasts. 
things like blink dogs or chimeric creatures like griffins or hippogriffs or things of that nature. There was a template type that I tried to remember several episodes back and for the life of me couldn't. But that template in 5e is called the Nyxborn, N-Y-X-B-O-R-N. And you'll have a lot of these and they are your basic creatures, but they generally have a couple extra stats thrown in because they are a celestial or a special type version of of that animal. They're not quite like a dire creature. And there is a Nyxborn table in the DMG that can let you determine how this template will affect your creatures. But again, you're going to get a lot of these. These are kind of like special one-up, you know, a little above and beyond your everyday critters that run around type thing. And it does also say that the occasional non-evil aberration will also be found here, but few intelligent creatures that are not humanoid other than unicorns stay on the plane for very long so i couldn't find a whole lot of non-evil aberrations flumps are about the only ones that i could find well i think now we're gonna see a bit more of those again dnd has been hinting a lot of stuff coming out with this new edition they're putting out whether it's going to be sixth edition 5.5 or as ian suggested dnd 50 which is a great name I wish I could take credit for that. Whoever came up with that, that's an amazing name, and I really hope they run with it. But a lot of these now, they'll say that it's typically an alignment. So these creatures now don't have to have an alignment, and they're going to say that only specific named creatures are going to have a definitive alignment. And I think that is a really good and forward-thinking move that Wizards of the Coast had made. But with that now that everything is going to be typically an alignment you're going to be able to see a lot more of these aberrations on Beastlands because, again, typically doesn't mean that it has to be evil or not evil or whatever. They can be. Right. And the other side of that argument is that it doesn't really matter if you can have, say, good aligned Illithid or Beholders if they're not going to give us these planes to play in. And one thing that I will emphasize is that you have to have at least some element of playing with alignments in order to make an adventure in the Outer Planes work. Because the Outer Planes are these alignments embodied. Yes, I can see that. Absolutely. So whenever you get away from alignment, and that's fine. I'm all for not tying down your player characters to alignment. But you have to be able to play with alignment rules in order to make a planescape adventure where you're going to all of these outer planes work. Right. And that's why I think just the addition of the word typically was a master touch because they had kind of worked on a couple additions that came out where they tried to throw alignment out completely. And that really does break a lot of aspects of the game, unfortunately. But just that word typically, it doesn't give you, I mean, it does give you a lot of wiggle room, but it's really just enough that you can still have these alignments focused things like the plane so you could have large swaths of illithid or drow or celestials or whatever because you could very easily now have an evil celestial because celestials are typically good you can have the aberration you can have the oddball so you could be wherever you're at and you have a whole host of angels that are typically good and then there's lucifer makes perfect sense yeah, I mean, evil Celestials have been in the game for a while. Zeriel is a fallen Celestial, and I can't 
for the life of me remember his name, but the Lord of the Seventh, the one who got turned into a slug with little T-Rex arms. <laughs> he started off as an Archon. Right. So he was an Archon in Mount Celestia and he fell. Right. And he was transformed into an Archfiend by his fall. So that is something that is present. You don't see it quite as much going the other way. And that's what I'm the most looking forward to is taking devils and making them not evil because that is interesting to me. That is very interesting. And I love corruption redemption stories going both ways. I mean, really, that whole aspect is what drew me, honestly, to Warcraft lore with the whole Arthas thing in Warcraft 3, even before WoW. This is a completely different rabbit trail. And I do want to say that Ian and I are planning on doing an episode or two talking about some of the changes coming up with the newer editions that Wizards have been announcing. But that's not Beastland stuff. So let's get back into Beastland. Yeah, let's get back. We have That was one heck of a rabbit trail that we just disappeared down rabbits you can find rabbits in the beastlands <laughs> so some sages believe that the spirits of wild creatures go to the beastlands when they die so this would also assume that creatures have souls to go to the beastlands i like the concept of a wild animal petitioner yes i love it i really, I really like do that. So in addition to the normal celestial creature template that you had in third edition, their intelligence automatically bumps to three if they were a lower intelligence than that, and they can speak celestial. So every creature in this plane, regardless of whether or not they are normally sentient, so whether they are a humanoid soul that has taken an animal form or whether they are a wild beast soul that has materialized in the Beastlands. They are all capable of speaking Celestial. So this is where I was getting earlier with, you know, if you get lost and you have someone in your party who speaks Celestial, you can find a creature, any creature on the plane and strike up a conversation with them in Celestial. And if they are amenable, they can direct you to where the nearest portal is. That's really good. So the spell speak with animals is not necessarily needed here. And we'll find that some of the other creatures have some nice little added things that'll help communication with them as well. So another thing that you're going to find here, the Aladrin from Arborea. So the Celestial Aladrin, not the Feywild Aladrin from 5th edition. They're common here as are Planetars and Solars. So your angels. And Lelens, which we touched a little bit on the Lelendi at the end of the Arborea episode. Um, they are a half serpent, half humanoid creature with wings, and they are the guardians of the infinite staircase. I think they're primarily native to Isgard, so we'll touch on them a bit more when we get to Isgard, but you can find them here as well. These are kind of cool. I like these. They're kind of like a Yanti with wings. They're kind of reminding me of the Quaddle and Quexquaddle. Yes. And again, going into some Mesoamerican lore, which can be really fun. And the Quaddle or the Wing Serpents or however you want to describe them, they're cool creatures. I really like them a lot. and They don't get enough play in near anything, which is sad because like I said, they really are some kind of cool creatures. Yeah. It is also the home plane to many of the beasts of legend. So if you have, let's say, like the White Heart, so the questing beast, its soul resides here. Anything that had enough of a reputation to earn a name, it would be found here. So your Mufasas, your Scars, your Simbas. <laughs> Shere Khan the Tiger. Yeah, absolutely. Baloo the Bear. Baloo the Bear, yeah. All of those creatures 
As of recording this, there was recently Fat Bear Week in Alaska, and Otis the Bear won that. Otis the Bear is kind of amazing. Otis the Bear is absolutely going to be sitting here eating a bunch of fish, just because that's what he's going to be doing. So, a little bit of controversy, Harambe is here. Yeah, I can see that. Because all of the ills of the world are because somebody shot Harambe in 2016. That is where the timeline split, and we are now on the darkest timeline. Every action has its consequences, and sometimes you got to pay a toll, you know. There's the that. world has been cursed. It's haunted by the spirit of Harambe. He's just up there pissed, like, screw you guys. <laughs> anyway, you can also find most of the demi-human bestial races. So the ones that are specifically mentioned in the books are Bullywugs, Lizardfolk, Centaurs, Swan Maze, which are... They are actually tied to one of the deities under Titania in the Sealy Court. And I can't remember the name of the deity off the top of my head, but they are, it's almost like a lycanthropy thing. Okay. The Swan Maze are all women. They're all female rangers, typically of elven descent, though some humans have gotten in there in the past that have the ability to transform themselves into swans, just straight up. Swan-like, I like it. And also... A creature called the Wemmick. So, a couple months ago, I made a creature on the Patreon called the Lean and Sagittary, which was based off of an actual mythological beast from medieval European iconography, primarily found in marginalia and illuminated manuscripts. It's like a centaur, but with a lion body instead of a horse body. And I thought at the time that that creature had not made it into Dungeons and Dragons. Well, I was wrong because they called it a Wemmick. I don't know where the root of the name comes from, but that's what this is. It is a Leonin centaur. I like them. So here again, I thought I was being original. (laughs) And then I dove into second edition and found out that it just wasn't so. That brings up a point. There's so much that got left behind. There's so much. And that's one of the reasons why Ian and I love doing this podcast is we get to bring back some of these kind of forgotten treasures, really. So some other races that are not specifically mentioned, but that I would actually bring in would be the Aarakocra and the Kinku. I would almost make this an afterlife where the Kinku have lost their curse. So they are capable of flight and they can create original thought. They're not just mimics. I like it. See here the Tabaxi and the Loxodon. So the elephant people talking about the newest book to come out at the time of recording, The Wild Beyond the Witchlight. The Herringon, the rabbit people, they would be here. The Torta need to be in there. Yeah, the Tortles are going to be here. All of those animal race people. I would honestly throw the Yonti in here as well. Yeah, well, that would be for the non-evil Yonti. This would be the afterlife for the non-evil Yonti. Yes. But another creature that I would throw in here, because it was mentioned that on the fringes of the plane you have these fungal forests, Myconids. Absolutely. And that's, again, one of those forgotten creatures. But yeah. I want to go and visit the mushroom forest with the celestial myconids. Absolutely. And that's where I'm rocking my circle of the spores, Druid. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's where we're going to get into why the type of ranger that you bring with you as a guide is going to be important. Animal companions, pets, and mounts will bolt and flee upon entering the plane, being overcome by the draw of the wild primal nature of the plane. There's no role that you can make to maintain control. They just bolt. 
and they go and they live their free lives. They do their thing. Now, as a DM touch, I probably would extend this to familiars as well. It does extend to familiars that have a natural form. Right. So if you had like a crow, a rabbit, a cat, a frog, a spider, just poof. Yes. And it does specifically mention that magical companions like pseudo dragons or imp familiars are unaffected. So something that would be a denizen from another plane that is not native to the material plane. So pseudo dragon slash fairy dragon being primarily from the Feywild and imps and quasits being from the Nine Hells or the Abyss, respectively, they would be unaffected by this particular aspect. Your imp or quasit is going to have a hard time because they're evil yeah, in a good aligned plane, but they're not going to bolt because they are not bestial. Exactly. Your creature type, as it were, is going to play a huge, huge factor in this, whether it's a pet or, again, a familiar or something like that. Going through, I would even say if you were one of those semi-bestial races as a player character, I'd almost want to give a penalty to some will checks, maybe, because maybe that bestial side's trying to take over or maybe run rampant, and so maybe you have a harder time focusing or keeping your concentration on some things, I think could be an interesting roleplay touch, if nothing else. For me, that comes awfully close to penalizing player agency. I would hesitate to do something like that. Okay. Personally. It's not rules as written. That Again, that would be a DM choice. But I think from a role play, and maybe you could just leave that to your characters if they wish to role play it that way. But I think that would be a possibility in some people or some characters. But again, that could be a DM call or an RP call either way. Right. And just for your ranger so that they're not completely freaking out, loyal companions and mounts will return to you when you leave the plane. So they're not gone forever. They're just gone until you go to leave, and then they will come out with you. Yeah, if you really want to piss off the ranger at your table, make them lose their puppy. (laughs) Your puppy is gone. It's gone forever. That's how you turn your ranger into John Wick. Yes. Okay, so that's out of the way. Let's get on to petitioners. Petitioners tend to arrive based on personal philosophy because there aren't a whole lot of gods here in the Beastlands. They tend to be good individuals who tend towards the side of freedom over order. It is most likely the final resting place for most druids and rangers, as we have suggested. I would say that probably Oath of the Ancients paladins are probably fairly common here as well. Okay, I could see that. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I could see, I don't know, kind of like your brawler fighter, kind of like he's not bad. He's just kind of not quite on our party plane, you know, or rat boy plane, but this would be the next step down from that pretty much. I would say that that character is probably going to be an Easeguard, and we'll get to that whenever we get to Easeguard. Okay. So keep that in your mind on the back burner until we get there. So many things on the back burner. <laughs> I know, it's getting kind of crowded. So the petitioners tend to live in small communities around the base of trees, living simple lives in harmony with the plane. So, you know, just that idyllic natural life you know when you see like the film clips and stuff the hippies from the 70s where they've got the little daisy crowns and they're all like sitting in the circle holding hands around the tree singing kumbaya it's kind of almost that it is an idealized form of that (laughs) it's woodstock with less mud (laughs) yeah so in second edition if you spent a decent amount of time on the plane you would start taking on animalistic aspects based on your particular attributes. So things like growing cat ears or a peacock tail 
or something along those lines. And it would be dependent on whatever your highest primary stat was. So some of the examples that they gave for the stats are with strength, you would start taking on aspects of like bears or eagles or gorillas or tigers. So maybe like cat eyes or you just get really hairy or you know your fingernails start to elongate into talons or something along those lines i'm gonna go ahead and say it the furry conventions here are probably pretty awesome (laughs) just maybe just a little bit at least the costuming is going to be on point yeah for dexterity it will be antelopes monkeys otters rabbits snakes those are the examples given for constitution camels elephants horses and oxen so all of your beasts of burden for intelligence Apes, cats, dogs, dolphins, foxes, or wolves. With wisdom, lions, because they are the wise king of the jungle. That is literally what the book says. Owls, tortoises, and turtles. And then with charisma, it's all of your cutesy things. So bear cubs, birds, so all of your showy songbirds, deer, kittens, and puppies. I don't know. No one's obviously never met Ani, because Ani's definitely <laughs> on her charisma checks. She's got the intel, but she's fell on them charisma checks pretty hard. Well, I would say that if you were a wizard, you could take on some African Grey characteristics. Absolutely. So sometimes they begin to manifest in days and other times in hours, and it all depends on your alignment whenever you arrive. So lawful creatures take 1d4 plus 1 days before they start changing. Neutral creatures start in 2d12 hours, and chaotic creatures start in 1d6 hours. They don't even try. They're like chaos with who? They all take full effect by the time you've spent one week on the plane, and they remain until you have left the plane for an amount of time equal to the amount of time you just spent in the Beastlands. So if you spent five days in the Beastlands, you're going to keep these traits for five days after you leave. Okay. And it is specific that the effects are intended to enhance roleplay and have no mechanical benefit. It's all costume. Like I said, if you want to go here before that furry con, you can really get your... I don't know if they call it costuming or garb. I don't know what the correct term for that would be, but you could really get that on point and kind of get yourself all prepped. And then it just washes off in a couple of days. So you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Moving into the factions, the primary faction within the Beastlands are the sign of the one, also known as the signers. They believe that the multiverse only exists because it is being observed. And as far as they're concerned, if it doesn't have any impact on their life, it doesn't exist. Okay. The example that they give is a critter asks, is it food? Is it a mate? Is it a threat? If the answer to all three is no, it effectively doesn't exist and they ignore it. I like these guys. So their primary gathering place is in the gate town of Faunel in the Outlands, but they do have multiple outposts across the Beastlands. We're going to get into them whenever we get into the first layer because there is an outpost called Signpost where they have a fairly strong presence. The other big group that you're going to run into in the Beastlands are called the Verdant Guild, also known as the Wilders. They're basically D&D Greenpeace. (laughs) Their goal is to protect the Beastlands and other wild places from depredation and destruction. So they are primarily composed of rangers, druids, and animal petitioners within the Beastlands. And their activities are to prepare for overspill or fallout from the blood war. That was their whole thing is to get the Beastlands ready so that they can react if the blood war spilled out 
of the lower planes and into the beastlands. That is a weird amount of forethought that you don't see in the other planes, so I kind of like that, really. And there is a rival faction to the Wilders who are referred to as the Vile Hunt. I don't know if that's the name they give themselves or if that's the name that they are given, but that's the only name that we have for them. These are the purists who believe that having sentient minds in the bodies of animals is an abomination. And as such, they seek to hunt all of the petitioners of the Beastlands. Just let that sink in for a minute. I would almost make these like the Van Helsings, you know, and just kind of where they hunt the lycanthropes. Yeah. But like cranked up to like 11d1. Yeah, these are all of your stereotypical inquisitors and yeah, monster absolutely. hunters and witch hunters. Yes. That's the sort of level that we're getting at with these guys. Which makes them some really good villains, honestly. Depending how you want to write them up or play them out. If you need a group you want to hate, I mean, these guys hit a lot of those boxes real quick. Yeah, it's basically just written out for you. Yeah. Hey, look, these guys are assholes. We should hate them. <laughs> yeah. And they are currently petitioning within Faunel, within this gate town that opens into the Beastlands. They're petitioning for extra portals to be opened up so that they can accommodate all of the hunts that they want to do. Yeah, I mean, there are so many story and RP hooks possible with this. I mean, these could be a faction that you could try to start with or go, but they could even be from another plane and they're just, you know, throwing money around because maybe that's what they've got from doing dirty jobs or whatever. Like I said, these make for some really, really solid villains. I could do a lot with these. It would be a lot of fun. Yeah, this is how you can get all of your catharsis out for all of these rich guy kids who go to Africa on the big safari hunts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just make him an asshole and, yeah. and throw him in with his trial hunt. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so understandably, the tensions between the vile hunt and the wilders are super high and everyone is just waiting for them to actually go into all out war against each other. Oh, one note would be a really fun. I could see this as a campaign or an arc, but where you've got the Wilders and they're trying to protect and set stuff up so they can be prepared for the blood war. You could easily have some devils or demons that maybe have worked their way into the vile hunt and maybe that's where they're getting a lot of their funding. And so like the demons or devils are trying to use the vile hunt to subvert the preparations of the Wilders as like a, well, if this spills out, we're going here, then we're obviously going to need all of these crap ton of natural resources yeah, I can definitely see the Vile Hunt being used as... As a front? They're basically a vanguard to establish beachheads. Yeah. To allow for the devils or the demons to get out of the lower planes and into the upper planes. Yeah, see, I need to add this to the list of the campaigns I need to write up. And like, <laughs> I'm doing a bunch of other projects right now. And I've got like five or six of these little modules I want to write for this because we've gone through things and I need to sit down and just start doing it. <laughs> yeah, but that pretty much does the major factions that you're going to run into. There is one entity that I wanted to touch on before we actually get into the creatures of the Beastlands and start wrapping this up. An entity called Stillsong. Stillsong is a roaming proto-god. It is a god in transition that has not yet taken a physical form that primarily follows the river Oceanus. They typically go up and down the river, and they manifest as a 40-foot diameter sphere of pure song. They are a proto-god of song. I like it. And they're primarily accompanied by Delphons, which are also known as song sharks, which we're going to touch on when we get to the creatures, whenever they're going along the banks of the Oceanus. But on the occasions when they have to leave the banks because they will 
occasionally render aid to good aligned creatures that need aid. They are accompanied by 1d4 moon dogs, which are these really bizarre looking dog-ish creatures that have human hands for front paws. They're really kind of weird. There's a reason why they haven't made it out of second edition. They may have made it into third edition. I'm not certain, but there's a reason why they haven't really made it outside of second edition in any real major sense. Because they're just weird. (laughs) But it is described in the books as an invisible sphere of song that is inaudible beyond the diameter of the sphere. Still song is song. And it wanders the upper plains seemingly without rhyme or reason. As I said, primarily sticking to the river Oceanus. And while within its sphere, non-evil creatures are affected by the spell Create Emotion Hope, which was a second edition spell. Personally, I would grant them advantage against charm and fear effects plus the effects of the bless spell. That's kind of what I would get. It's kind of a morale boost. Yeah. And evil creatures within the sphere are affected by cause fear. So they are afraid of it and they're going to try and flee it. Okay. I like the concept of a song god. I mean, that's really kind of cool. And as we were talking about, you know, the hippies doing the whole Woodstock thing, I totally see still song just rocking around in there because, you know, music and all that. No, right. I, I like that. I mean, that's a concept that I never really tried to tackle before in my head. And that just feels right. The way music affects most people, if you're sad, if you're up, if you've ever been to an event with a good DJ and how a DJ can read a crowd or shift the mood and tempo of a crowd, music is extremely powerful. Song is powerful. So this is an amazing concept. I'm kind of just like, wow about it. Yeah. So additionally, in its effects, three times a day, it is able to leave behind a globe of invulnerability, which lasts for 1d6 plus 3 rounds. And once a day, it can use time stop that lasts 1d6 plus 1 rounds or until it moves. So it wants to do the time warp again? And it is also able to use holy word once a day. It is immune to mind influencing and elemental magic because it has no body. Okay. So it is effectively, it is immune to everything but force necrotic and radiant damage possibly thunder damage but because it's immune to mind influencing magic it's immune to psychic and because it's immune to elemental that's acid cold fire lightning poison i would say as a god of song and song is sound that it would be immune to thunder yeah that's kind of where i was going to so basically force necrotic and radiant are the only things that are going to really stick if you throw them at it okay what kind of bastard's going to try to kill the god of music i mean seriously dude Seriously, that's an evil that I can't even broach, you know. That goes beyond chaotic evil. (laughs) It happened in that Don McLean song. (sighs) Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) the last thing, it's also immune to damage from weapons and to spells that affect a physical body. So things like enfeeblement, disintegrate, things that have to have a physical something to interact with. They just automatically fail. So it really does have a very limited number of things that can even affect it. Though, why you're trying to kill the God of Song, I don't know. Yeah, you're just a bastard if that's you. I mean, even summoning Magnus, you're a bastard if you do that. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So last up on the list are the creatures of the Beastlands. The first thing that we're going to get into are the animal lords. They are the big thing in the Beastlands. There are four in total. You've got cat, lizard, hawk, and wolf. 
the Cat Lord is going to be addressed in a little bit more detail whenever we get to the second layer of Brooks. The Cat Lord draws in big cats, so tigers, lions, panthers, jaguars, plus cat lycanthropes such as were tigers and were jaguars the current cat lord is female doesn't give a name for her but whenever she's in her humanoid form she has long dark hair and green cat eyes otherwise just a very comely humanoid she should totally be bast from egyptian lore no she has big beef with bast and we're gonna get to that next week Oh, okay, great. But the thing about the Cat Lord is the Cat Lord is perceived differently depending on the viewer's opinion of cats. So to people who love cats, the Cat Lord has a charisma of 22 and is very attractive. To people who are indifferent about cats, have a charisma of 18 and just seem like a really interesting human being. And to people who hate or fear cats, has a charisma of 10 and seems very repulsive and intimidating. The second one is the Hawk Lord. Cat and Hawk were both female, Lizard and Wolf were both male in 2nd edition. So the Hawk Lord is probably going to be accompanied by Remnus, the god of eagles, who is a very prominent animal deity within the Beastlands. She may even be the consort of Remnus. It's not really addressed. Personally, that's part of how I would do it. So they have a relationship with one another, but they are still separate entities because they do both have their own petitioners. I don't know. Again, here's a strong girl, and you know what? She's a consort of the even stronger god of eagles. Ah, there's that, what do they call that in movie making? There's the test of whether... Bechdel test? Yeah. It kind of fails that in my mind. If you want to do it that way, that's fine. I wouldn't mind having her just a full-on standalone. This is me. Deal with it. I know the dude, sure, we're cool, but I wouldn't necessarily attach the two. Well, I mean, I would say it would play into the same sort of dynamic as the dynamic between Titania and Oberyn in the Sealy Court. Okay. Where Oberyn technically has his own court, the Wild Court. Yeah. But he is viewed as the consort to Titania. They are sometimes lovers, sometimes enemies. I could see that. That would be the sort of dynamic that I would want to establish here. Okay. Just because the Hawk Lord and Remnus have very similar MOs and very similar portfolios. And so it would be difficult for me to establish a boundary between the two saying that this is definitively where the Hawk Lord is and this is definitively where Remnus is as two separate things. Just because of their nature, they have to have a relationship of some sort. And I don't think that it would be purely antagonistic. I can see that. But making her the the quote, quote, consort, when you say consort, I kind of think... It is loaded language, I will admit. Yeah, that's what rubs me wrong with that. But otherwise, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in a D&D context... Whenever you have two entities of power that have a relationship like this, where one of them is a god and the other one is not a god, the one that is not a god in that relationship is typically viewed as the consort to the other. Fair enough. I will grant you that. This has been your philosophy seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Continuing on, next is going to be the Lizard Lord. The Lizard Lord is the one that is least likely to be found in his humanoid form, as opposed to the Hawk Lord, which 
I should have mentioned, is the animal lord most likely to interact with humans. The hawk lord is the one that enjoys the company of people the most. The lizard lord likes being left alone. He usually takes the form of a Komodo dragon or a giant Gila monster. I like it. I prefer Godzilla, but I'll take it. Well, he's not a kaiju, so... Uh, well. All of these, their animal form is probably going to be large at the biggest. But in his humanoid form, he tries to use his innate hypnotism ability. So, yes, he can turn himself into Hypnotoad. <laughs> All hail. And in second edition, any target that he tried to use hypnotism on had a minus three penalty on the save to make people more susceptible to his suggestions. Personally, I would run that in fifth edition as he has an at-will ability to cast suggestion and targets have disadvantage on the saving throw. Yeah, that's a good fit. Then the last one is the Wolf Lord. He's always running with his pack of wolves and he will almost always dive into his wolf form if he is going to be engaging in any sort of combat. He is immune to non-magical weapons, same as like a werewolf, but without the weakness to silver that werewolves have. And when he's in his humanoid form, he has a dagger that has a save or die poison that never runs out. Nice. (laughs) And based on the depiction that he's given in the second edition books, he's basically Teen Wolf. Awesome. He's Michael J. Fox. I love it. (laughs) The description verbatim from the book is, The Lord of Wolves appears more human than most animal lords as a teenaged boy with sharp lupine features, an intelligent face, and eyes bright with life. Yeah, he is totally Michael J. Fox. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. But how is he at basketball? We'll leave that up for you to decide. The next one that we want to cover is the Mortai, because we have brought that up. They are sentient clouds of near godlike power, uh, also referred to as faces in the clouds. They have bodies that can span for miles because they're giant sentient clouds, and they know and can speak any language. They prefer to speak in terms of philosophy, but with clever prodding and the correctly asked questions, they can give very important information very willingly. They are also capable of casting legend lore at will and are always accurate with their results. Nice. And that's why I said they're nearly godlike. Uh, in second edition, they're worth uh, like 25,000 experience points. Which would make them like a CR-26 creature, something along those lines. Yeah, it's insane. If they are engaged in combat, they typically just up and fly away uh, because they are clouds. And if their attacker is an evil creature, they will often use their turn to teach that creature a lesson. So they can throw lightning bolts that are 10 feet in diameter and miles in length (laughs) that deal... 10d6 damage on a hit, half damage on a miss. And if you're hit, you also have to succeed on a save or be stunned for 2d10 rounds. Oh my god, these things suck. So they're going to hit you with a lightning bolt, (laughs) stun you for 2d10 rounds, and then just lecture you that entire time. Absolutely. Oh god, these guys are assholes. I don't like them anymore. (laughs) They can't be harmed with non-magical weapons, and they can only be harmed with magical weapons If you can find their core at the heart of the cloud, which is a 10 foot diameter core at the center of this mile plus wide cloud. That's yeah. Yeah, it's completely impractical, but they're also huge fans of practical jokes. 
God, these guys are assholes. I love them. (laughs) They especially like to take out these practical jokes on people who take themselves very seriously. They tend to be non-damaging, except for the target's pride. A couple of the examples that they gave were a tiny rain cloud that hovers over them for a few days, or a constant wind that follows them, uh, periodically blowing their hat off or blowing their hair in the face. You know, just to be an asshole. (laughs) These guys are total assholes. I kind of love them. (laughs) Yeah. Next on the list are the Purrs that we talked about being the guardians of these portals on Yggdrasil. They are humanoid creatures. They are the souls of humans who died as guardians. And they have passive healing. They have a permanent shield spell, so you can't ping them with magic missiles. And they have true sight. I like it. And the weapons that they carry are sentient plus three frost brands. Wow. Which become plus six whenever used against creatures that are fire-using slash fire-dwelling. So anything that has a fire elemental affinity or that is from a plane that has a fire affinity to it. And they have a mental link with the deity whose planar portal they guard. So whenever they're under duress or if they're killed, the deity can send reinforcements to secure the portal, which often take the form of additional purrs. I like it. And they are intelligent creatures, so they're able to adequately assess threats. And if they view this party that's coming up to them as too much of a threat for them to handle by themselves, if they can acknowledge that they're outmatched, they will instead challenge their leader or most powerful warrior to single combat. I like it. So they do have that honorable feel to them, that honorable warrior feel to them that you find so often in fantasy literature. Yeah, I could also see these things, like you said, where they can kind of call for backup. I could see them doing like an honorable retreat and then coming back with some extra muscle behind them and kind of coming back. They will never abandon their post. That is one of the things. They will never abandon the portal that they're supposed to be guarding. Okay. So there could be some interesting things where you, as a party, are trying to distract the purr sufficiently by fighting it that some of your party can slip around and sneak through the portal undetected and then figuring out if that's possible. Yeah. So next creature on my list are the Delphons. I mentioned them when we were talking about Stillsong. They're also known as song sharks and they dwell within the river Oceanus. They can be found from the headwaters in Elysium all the way through to Arborea but they prefer to stay on the stretch that goes through Krigala, the first layer of the Beastlands. They resemble sharks. Actually, the artwork resembles more of a pike, so that long fish with that big, elongated jaw as opposed to a wide jaw. Okay. Most of them are silver, but they are sometimes very vibrant colors, like you know, reds and blues and greens, and they are known to carve intricate tattoos on their sides by rubbing themselves against rocky outcroppings in the river that sounds painful it does doesn't it (laughs) their most dangerous defense is their song so whenever you are within range of them if you are hostile to them you have to succeed probably in fifth edition would be a wisdom saving throw and if you fail then you roll a d12 to see what happens yeah more tables on a one to four you are charmed by the delphon for 1d10 hours This is the way that the Delphon hunt because they eat fish because they're sharks. And so creatures that lack sentience, this is the only result that they can get. On a five to seven, 
The target is affected by the confusion spell for 3d6 rounds. On an 8 or a 9, the target is held as by hold person for 1d10 rounds. On a 10 or 11, the target is rendered unconscious for 3d10 rounds as its mind is shattered by the notes and their profound meanings. Oh. And on a 12, the target begins to learn the meaning of the song and suddenly understands something new about the multiverse. It's the sound of silence. (laughs) So the knowledge that you gain should pertain to something that touches the River Oceanus. And some of the examples that they give are the location of the nearest gate to a neighboring plane. How to reach the Isles of the Blessed in Thalassia, which is the realm of Pelor in Elysium. Whether or not the river actually reaches the gates of the moon in Isgard. And how to avoid the natural hazards of the river. Okay. Creatures who get that result can learn aspects of the song and can learn to mimic it in order to crudely communicate with the Delphons and are able to, in turn, get them to help take them from plane to plane along the Oceanus because they are able to plane shift at will. So they are able to take creatures with them as long as they are still within the river. If you needed to get to Elysium real quick, boof. There is one more thing about the Delphons. In their monster manual entry, there is a reference to a Gethzerai hermit living in Kregala, which is the first layer of the Beastlands, referred to as the Singing Gith, who claims to be able to understand and communicate with the Delphons. And there's a whole section in the monster manual entry of the story that he tells you about how he was drowning in the river and the Delphon saved him and he understood the song and all of that. It's kind of really interesting that they went through and did that level of world building just in a monster manual entry. Yeah, that is quite a bit. And and the last thing that I want to touch on, because we're going way long, um, (laughs) the last thing I want to touch on before we wrap up, the Oceanus Dragon. Another thing from the Draconomicon, this is the counterpart of the Shadow Drake that lives in the River Styx. Oceanus dragons live in the River Oceanus, as the name suggests. They are swimming dragons that can use their wings as fins, so they do have a fly, swim, and walk speed. While they have a lair where they have a horde, they tend to not be in it. They tend to patrol the length of the Oceanus, seeking good creatures to aid or evil creatures to punish. They have two different breath weapon attacks. The first is a line of lightning, kind of like with a brass dragon. No, bronze. It's a bronze dragon. Or a cone of tranquility gas. Oh. Which in third edition was the daze spell. In fifth edition, I would say it would be a save versus either the incapacitated or stunned condition. I can see either one of those, yeah. It's just basically whether or not you take extra penalties other than you can't take actions because that's all incapacitated does is you can't take any actions so you can't move you can't take actions bonus actions or reactions but you don't have any of the other penalties that you would get with stunned which is things like you have disadvantage on strength and dexterity saves i think that's the big one okay but anyway it's irrelevant (laughs) and once per day they can smite evil dealing extra damage to an evil creature equal to its total hit dice. Oh my. So a great worm Oceanus dragon hits for an extra plus 40 radiant damage once a day against an evil creature. Sweet Jeebus. Yeah, it's big. And then on top of that dragon, you know, you have all of your normal beasts, all your giant beasts, all your dire beasts, magical creatures like blink dogs, especially now that we're getting away from rigid alignments for creatures 
you can find displacer beasts here, unicorns, things like that. Also chimeric creatures like griffins, manticores, hydras, pegasi, all of those. And then there's a location that we're going to get to that's totally awesome called the Forbidden Plateau where you can find dinosaurs. I like it. One more thing that you're probably going to find a good deal here in the Beastlands that hasn't been brought up. This is a really, really good place. You'll probably find a strong contingent of the Summer Court and the Sealy Courts through here. Just this, you know, kind of natural wild, a lot of growth is kind of going to fall right in line. So again, if you want to throw some extra Fae in here, and again, we kind of touched on them with like the Blank Dogs and the Unicorns and things like that, but... These would fit in here very well also. Yeah, the Sealy Court does come into the Beastlands periodically. We're going to touch on that a little bit more again when we're talking about Kragala, the first layer, next week. So that is a thing. I did not forget it. It just hasn't come up yet. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so thank you once again for joining us for another much longer than I anticipated episode of Undercommon Taste. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com or as a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and Insult page a day calendar inspired roleplay prompts six days a week. They get posted to the Twitter account and then cross posted to our Instagram and Facebook accounts at Undercommon Taste. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. That's where we post all of our write ups. Uh, Most of them are free. A couple of them are behind the patron paywall. If you like what we do and you want to help support the show financially, please consider coming over and becoming a patron. We're also on Discord. So come join us on Discord and chat with us. You can find the link to our Discord in the show notes. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe, give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. So thanks once more for listening, and we'll see you next week as we dive into the layers of the Beastlands. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. Our theme is Massacre Anne written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.